0: Uh, I would like for you this morning uh, to consider God's Word with me. It's printed in your bulletin from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. And I don't know what has been on your mind this morning as you've come. Perhaps you prepared yourself for several hours uh, before you walked in the door for worship and your mind was in a reverie and in step with Christ Jesus, and uh, if so... I thank God for that. Rare have been the Sundays that has that been true for me, I fear, but, uh, but that's a wonderful thing. But perhaps um, the kids were especially problematic as you came, or, or maybe you had some heavy news this last weekend or weekend. You're heavy of heart as you come. Uh, perhaps there's a struggle that's going on in your life. And uh, I don't know what it is, and perhaps no one else here knows, but God knows. And You're here in part because he who orchestrates every detail in his cosmos has brought you here. You say, I had a hand in that, I chose to be here, and that's true. But who put it in your heart to choose to be here? Because there is a proximate cause should not cause us to doubt the ultimate cause with that in mind hear then from God's Word today from the Apostle Paul his second letter that as we call it to the Corinthians in first Corinthians his first letter he talks about a prior letter so we don't have that prior letter it has not in God's providence been preserved for us so we might say we have 2nd and 3rd Corinthians in our Bibles and are missing 1st Corinthians, but we don't do that. We say 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and that'll do just fine. This is 2nd Corinthians, then, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows thus far in God's word, inherent and sure. Let's look to him in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, there's so much here in just these few verses. Speak to me and speak to us all this day, I pray, by your Spirit working in our hearts to give us minds to understand what you were saying and wills that are renewed to desire to please you and to obey you, that we may honor you. We pray that you would change us, O God, for having met here in your presence and heard you speak, by your Spirit, through your Word, for we make our prayer in the majestic name of our champion and Savior, even Jesus Christ, Amen. I wrenched my knee earlier this week. It <laughs> uh, wasn't pleasant. I was just doing a four-mile walk up and down the hills of my development. <laughs> and uh, not particular. I was pushing a little on my own without Louise, who often walks with me, and, and just, I don't know what I did. I just, boom, but I wouldn't stop, you know. I'm one of these hard-headed Viking guys, and I keep going until I finish what I set out to do, and that was probably a bull-headed, proud mistake, and I paid for it. Little by little, it's getting better, but I haven't been able to get my regular daily workouts, you know, and uh, that's been frustrating for me, and I'm beginning to lose the Battle of the midriff. Some of you can identify, and some of you, bless you, have never had that problem, well, we don't usually particularly enjoy pain. And if I'm walking this morning and I wince when I turn, you'll know <laughs> that it's a moment I'm not particularly enjoying at that instant. But we may endure it, different motivations to endure it, mostly, though, we typically just want it to end so that we can be rid of it. <laughs> well, Americans tend to view pain as pathological. Something wrong if you're hurting. You want to get rid of it, you want to get over it, you want to get it fixed so you can go back to being the way it should be, that is, happy and pain-free. Isn't that the way we're entitled to live our lives? Uh, All men are created equal and endowed by their Creator. Uh, with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's part of our happiness, we think. Well, there's some truth in that, you know. Uh, We tend to think that something's got to be wrong if we're in pain. But the, the truth in that is that we live in a fallen world. God didn't create us as a race of people, humanity bearing his image, to exercise dominion over the creation. He didn't create us so that we would be heavy with sorrow, grow old, wear out, and die. And we will, if we live long enough to die old. It's appointed unto man once to die, Scripture says. And after that, the judgment and accounting. Lest Christ comes at the close of history before our time here is done, each of us will go through that. And there is a fallenness in this world. Something is wrong. God does intend us, ultimately, if we're His people, to be pain free and happy. And the scripture tells us about that it's the new Jerusalem, it's the restored creation. It's heaven in the presence of our maker in whose image we were made and whose praise we were crafted to be able to offer to him. That day's coming, but it isn't right now. And in between, you see, in between, there's the problem. The fall, the uh, plunging into rebellion against God that the first generation of Our race our humanity entered into and with it the scripture says the effect on the whole of creation so that creation doesn't cooperate anymore thorns and thistles grow by the sweat of our brow we eke out often an existence and in many parts of the world most people do just barely make it America, we tend, most of us, to live in relative plenty, but we're the exception. We need to understand that God did place a judgment on the world. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, creation itself groans, waiting for the release of the coming again of Christ and the bringing about of a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And there, we're told, in the book of Revelation, there will be no more crying or weeping or sorrow or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. That day's coming. It gives us hope. We talked last week about there being an end line, a finish line to our marathon. It's not a moving finish line, a sadistic joke played upon the runner. No, there is a goal and we are drawing near. Scripture says we're in the last days. Last days? last ten minutes? No, no, no. The last days, the Scripture says, are between the coming of Christ and the coming again of Christ. And we're in that epoch, that period in which the judge is even at the door. A membrane away. He's ready. I've been in court a few times, as a chaplain I often had to go together with a sailor and stand with him in front of the bar. Places I'd rather be, things I'd rather have done, but those days that's where I was assigned. I would stand shoulder to shoulder with (laughs) the accused sailor in a court of law. But before, you know, before the proceedings formally began, there was a hush, kind of a waiting. The door was closed, out of which to the judge's chambers, and then there was the announcement: "All rise." And at that announcement, the door would open, and in would enter the judge. And he would be uh, seated at the at the uh, bar, and then and then everyone else was told they were to be seated. Well, uh, you know, at that moment, just before the judge enters. How far away is the judge? Right at the door. What's it going to take for him to be there? For the door to open, he steps in. The Bible says that close is our Lord Jesus. Every day, he's that close. We don't know the day or the hour. He's that close. The finish line is in a day and hour, none of us know, but it's that close. And we're to live our lives... In the light of that eschatological hope, every day, even in the middle of the hard times. I want to talk about the hard times. You know, certain scholars, a number of them, who have studied sociology of religion and so on, and philosophy of religion, tell us that the world religions may, in some sense, often, one of the ways of dis discriminating between them, of setting up a taxonomy of world religions, is according to the criterion of the solution or the answer they give to the problem of suffering. Hinduism looks around, sees nice guys, and they live terrible conditions, and awful things happen to them. That doesn't seem just. They see pretty nefarious people folks that you wouldn't want as your neighbor who seem to have it made despite how they treat others. And that doesn't seem to make sense. You know, if your existence doesn't make sense, you can't build a civilization simple as that. You got to have certain answers to certain questions. One of them is meaning making sense of things, that there is justice in this world. And where's the justice in it? Well, in the Hindu mind, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, we've got it. There's justice after all. You're suffering even though you're a good guy because of something you did in a previous existence. You see? And we keep living again and again, being born over and over and over again, reincarnation. But the fact that you are enduring it patiently, you see, and, and being a nice guy now will help you on the next one. You've got to fulfill your karma, settle the debt to cosmic justice. Oh, we just keep going around that wheel till eventually the debt's paid and we can just be absorbed into the everythingness and nothingness all at once. The Nirvana of loss of any individuation or personal self-consciousness, and you don't have to ever suffer again, and that's heaven enough. And that's the answer of Hinduism, in a nutshell. Then there's Buddhism, the great, the great uh, reform movement from within. Hinduism, and they said, oh no, you're not, there's not a transmigration of the soul, there's not an individual personal self-consciousness that continues, uh, no, but, but there are these um, aggregates, and they, they keep being passed on, and, and creating combining into new self-conscious individuals for the time of their lifespan, and, and they carry on that karma, that debt to cosmic justice, and that's why you're suffering. What you need to do is just step back and be detached from everything. And if you're detached and you don't care anymore, then it doesn't matter what happens, and you can experience enlightenment. Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path help you do that and you see you know you just are detached from everything else and originally Buddhism taught that. It's a very different view of suffering. It doesn't have a purpose other than the fact that it reminds you that you're attached to something and as long as you're feeling pain it's showing you you're attached and so you need to be detached from family community anything else that doesn't help you build a society necessarily and it was often opposed by the rulers for that reason but that's another story and then you have islam and in islam it's just the will of allah if he wants you to suffer you suffer if he decides he's going to be merciful to you and let you into paradise he'll do that a lot of descriptions of what what males experience in paradise and there's almost nothing about what ladies have to look forward to interesting it's a very male centered form of religion but the idea of suffering you see but that at least has the notion of judgment after this life that justice is uh, satisfied at some point except that it's not really justice It's simply the whim of Allah. You see, Allah doesn't have to be just. He just has to be Allah. If he decides to be merciful, he'll be merciful. If he decides to give you a promise, he'll give you a promise. If he decides to break it, he'll break it. He's not bound. How different is the God of the Bible, who is El Chesed, the God of covenant faithfulness, who won't break His promises because it's part of His character to be faithful. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The comfort that we have, the purpose and meaning in the midst of a time of difficulty, of challenge, of sorrow. And know that there's a God who has a reason for it, and that reason is rooted in His own justice and mercy. And he gives promises to his people. And he won't break them. He is not Allah. He is Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I change not. And Therefore, you sons of Israel are not consumed. The Apostle Paul well understood the problem of suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He gives a litany of all the sufferings he's been through. He writes later in this epistle. And good grief, he's been whipped and scourged, he's been imprisoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been a night and a day in the deep. Now, I've sailed the seven seas, just about have. I've never been shipwrecked. I've gone over the side a few times. I'd rather not talk about that at the moment. (laughs) Not proud of it. (laughs) But I haven't been shipwrecked, and I never have spent a day and a night in the deep. Paul had done all that and more. If you want to read the litany of it, it's in chapter 11 in this epistle, verses 23 through 29. And part of his suffering was worrying about people like the Corinthian believers in this church to whom he's writing. They're worried about them. And that's a form of suffering too. Till he heard good word. A good word about them and from them. That God was still faithfully at work among them. And he praised God for that. In the text before us, Paul writes to these Corinthian believers in the southern part of what now is called Greece, and uh, he writes to teach us that because we're united to Christ, believers both receive and extend God's comfort to others. We both receive and extend to others God's comfort. The text teaches us and supports that truth by telling us of the source of that comfort and then the purpose of our comfort. We'll look at each of those two-point sermon. That doesn't sound very Presbyterian. That's what we have. And each point has only 2 subpoints. I don't promise it'll be shorter, but we're halfway through. Number one, number one, the source. God's intrinsic nature disposes him to compassion. Did you hear that? God's intrinsic nature—it's an attribute of God—to sh- to extend comfort to those He loves. Verse three: He's the God of all comfort. Quran has uh, each surah of the Quran begins in the name of Allah, the Merciful. Well, why is He merciful? To whom is He merciful? Just to anyone He chooses. Well. God chooses, the God of the Bible chooses. Is there a difference? Yes, there's a difference because Allah, who is merciful, may choose not to be merciful. But the God of the Bible who extends his covenant grace to us in Jesus Christ will never, ever rescind that. What he begins in us, he purposes to complete in us. Verse 3, we read, the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. Now, he's not saying comfort is God. <laughs> we Americans tend to think comfort is God. I mean, we do. Where do we put our money and our time in making life easier and more convenient and comfortable? That's a very high priority for... Now, comfort is not a bad thing, but comfort is not God. It's a blessing from God. There's difference. There's difference the God of all comfort, the one from whom comfort, true comfort comes. And it is for him a cause of grateful worship. Praise be to the God of all comfort. Thanksgiving. you thank God for being the God of comfort lately? Especially when you go through times that are hard. That's hard when you're alarm clock or rather a, 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 a phone call rings or something or a buzzer uh, an alarm buzzer next door uh, at a school rings at six o'clock in the morning as Zach has told us about a little bit ago um, <laughs> it's not always easy to wake up and shuffle along half, half in a daze and say thank you Lord for this moment <laughs> but we should we should Because we have a God who is the God of all comfort. And he hasn't let go of us. He's with us in that difficult moment. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who is the God of all comfort. You see, God extends compassion to us as his children. Verse 4, we ourselves, he says, have received this comfort from God Why? Because he's our father, the father of compassion, verse 3. How is he that? In Christ, Paul says. In Ephesians 1, 6, he says we are accepted in the beloved. We are members of God's household because we're seen by our heavenly father as united with Jesus Christ as our covenant and federal head. In Roman and Greek um, circles, the time that Paul wrote, uh, fatherhood was not what it is viewed as today. The nobility's notion of rearing their sons was to be relationally distant, putting them under intentionally severe hardships so as to suppress any emotional or affective father-son affection and replace it by and large, with unquestioning obedience and unflinching acceptance of ordeals. Pardon them. Make them strong. Well, there's some good in that and something terribly torturous, tortuously uh, deformed in that. See, contrast with that, the biblical notion of God as our Father in Christ, where there's a closeness and a tenderness that was too infrequently evident in the pagan Roman world and often is missing in our own. Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. So, so he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. The picture is that of a parent dandling A beloved little child a toddler on their knee and bouncing and singing you don't find that picture of a high God in the uh, pagan world of Paul's day you find it in the Bible you don't find it much around in our society these days where absentee fathers are more and more the norm and even those that live at home Often might as well not, because there's only conflict in the household, or abuse, or a detachment. And there are many ways, forms of abuse. It doesn't have to be physical abuse. My father-in-law, once my pastor, um, once observed this. He said, and he remarked on it, and remarked about it in a sermon. He said those who have experienced poor relationships with their fathers often have a difficult time visualizing God as a loving, just, and faithful heavenly Father. How important, then, it is for us as parents, believing parents, to model God's character in our own families. We can only do that, my friends. Number one, if we know God as father through faith in his son. And number two, as we are enabled by the Spirit of God to live more and more as reflections of our Savior. God's compassion is that which comforts us in our distress. Verse four, who comforts us in all our troubles. The word troubles used again and again here is a word used throughout the Greek New Testament, philipsis, it's translated, the King James, often as tribulation, but it may be uh, uh, troubles, it, it may be uh, uh, sufferings, it may be, I would translate it as ordeal sometimes. In fact, there's the cosmic flipsis, the great tribulation, which is that of redemptive history. Not just the closing few years immediately before the return of Christ, uh, whether or not that is literally so, we could have a discussion and study God's word on and, and believers have come to different conclusions on. But that's not the point this morning. The point is that the great tribulation is that that extends from Eden through Gethsemane to the New Jerusalem, from a garden, through a garden, to a garden. It's the meta narrative, the great story of redemptive history. And and if you're God's child this morning, your name is written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. No one can take it out. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in... Recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, listen, because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? How? That doesn't sound like something to celebrate. Ah, he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Apostles understood something of it in Acts chapter 5. They went back after being badly treated by the chief priests and other leaders of the Jewish community. And they went back, we're told, rejoicing because they had been accounted worthy to suffer for the name boy what a different view of suffering in uh, philippians or rather in john chapter 16 verse 33 we read jesus says i i have said these things so that you may have peace in the world you have tribulation well you just said you've said it so we'll have peace What's this about tribulation? Oh, he says, in the world you'll have tribulation. Doesn't take away his peace. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In, uh, and that leads us to the purpose of our suffering, you see. The believer experiences both suffering and comfort. This is crucial. You can underline it, if you will. In union with Christ. Those four words in union with christ what in union with him what do you mean verse 5 it says just as so also just as um, our the sufferings of christ flow over into our lives so also through christ our comfort overflows again in the upper room of uh, jesus discourse recorded in Uh, John chapter 15, verse 19, we read, um, If you belong to the world, Jesus says, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Now listen, that is why the world hates you. We're not used to thinking that we'll be hated because we're followers of Jesus Jesus says if we really are followers of him, there will come times, not necessarily all the time, but there will come times when we come up against the flow of this world and we will be countercultural and a burr under the saddle of just getting along. And we won't be popular. And if it's because of allegiance to Jesus and not because we're just being cantankerous. And then God says, we're to rejoice. Philippians chapter uh, 2, Jesus, uh, or rather the Apostle Paul, uh, says these words. Verses 1 and 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort, there's that word, from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And then he goes on in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, verses uh, 10 and 11, to say this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, there's that koinonia word again, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. How can that be? Like it can be because we're united with Christ in our suffering and in our comfort. And the believer's own comfort, then, is intended not just for us, but for others as well. Verse 4, so that, Paul says, we can comfort those in any trouble with a comfort we ourselves have received from God. Now, do you know that the nouns and verbs, many of them here, for suffering and for for trouble, and also are flipses, but we've talked about that, but But the words for comfort are cognates of the word we get our our word paraclete from. Jesus used that as a term, a title, for the Holy Spirit when he promised that he'd come in John chapter 16 when Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room. Think about that. Who is this Holy Spirit just to come? He's the comforter, sometimes translated, the advocate, sometimes... uh, and some people here have been advocates. I look around, I recognize one or two attorneys in our, in our congregation. To advocate. might say, in a weaker sense, perhaps the chaplain who stands alongside the accused. He's our advocate. He's our comforter. And now Paul is saying that with that same word again and again, sometimes the, the root of it, the lemma, used as a noun, sometimes used as a verb, comfort, with the comfort that you've been comforted. Comfort others with the comfort that you yourselves have been comforted. Jesus says in John 16 in that upper room, uh, verses 7 through 11, he says, "Uh, I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, Paraclete, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Comforter, paraclete the counselor in c.s lewis's narnia chronicles the first one of that number the lion the witch and the wardrobe some of you may have read it but little lucy the youngest of the four siblings is given uh, as a christmas gift a little vial of healing cordial that it that is ultimately from aslan but provided through the uh, figure of father christmas and what he represents and here at the end after the great battle and the consummation of of the the climax of the book her brother edmund is mortally wounded and she's so afraid but aslin reminds her of the cordial oh she pulls out that cordial it's a cordial of healing she'd forgotten about it she puts a drop of it on a little bit to the lips of her brother edmund and edmund begins to to recover quickly. Oh, she's overjoyed. She wants to cradle her brother's older brother's head in her arms and spend time with him. But, but there are others who are wounded and dying on that battlefield. Aslan says, what about the others, Lucy? Must more die for Edmund? It's more in that story that explains that word. But the point is, that gift was not just for her or those just closest to her was to be used in an extensive way. Johnny Erickson, many of you know her, founder of Johnny and Friends, had an accident, for those who aren't aware, when she was around 18, a diving accident and swimming and in, in a lake or, a, or, the, or the ocean, I've forgotten which, and hit, hit something as she dived in, broke her neck, became... A, para, a quadriplegic, quadriplegic, despaired of life at certain points and despaired of God at others, and went through a time of real trauma and coming to grips with the, the fact that she would never walk again and probably never have most of the use of her arms again and hands. She began to learn to paint with her mouth, use, holding the tip of the, uh, or the end of a, paintbrush and and painting with it or sketching with a pencil and then over the course of time she began as she reflected on God's word and had the help of devotional material she began to give her testimony and then to speak and then uh, to reach out to others who were facing similar circumstances and and were uh, looking for for some encouragement in the midst of what seemed like a life-destroying experience and, and some time ago i remember hearing her give her testimony and she said these words if i were given the opportunity to choose a different life and ending words to this effect i would not choose any other than the one my heavenly father has appointed for me. You see, she saw his hand in her experience and how he was honored in the middle of it and through her in the lives of many, many more. Well finally, the believers union with Christ becomes a channel of God's comfort to others. Verse 5, through Christ our comfort overflows. A little later in this epistle, Uh, In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, uh, verses 6 and 7, um, the the Apostle Paul says, uh, um, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by, listen, the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. told us about your longing for me your deep sorrow your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever the corinthians who'd been comforted comforted titus who came to paul and comforted him god's comfort comes from him it overflows to us and through us and keeps on flowing keeps on flowing Verse 5, through Christ our comfort overflows, Paul says. Think of that, overflows. My cup's full and running over. A little child hears that and they think, "Uh uh-oh. When they spill, you know, it's not a good thing. (laughs) We have to be careful about the songs we teach our little ones and they misunderstand. But to have an overflowing well, as it were, of, of blessing. Psalm 1, the righteous man is one who's planted by the rivers of water, brings forth his fruit in his season, his leaf doesn't wither, and everything he does prospers ultimately. That's Christ. And in our union with him, it becomes us. And that motif is picked up by uh, Ezekiel in the last f- uh, s- closing section of, of his book in chapter 47. He sees the, the, the grand new... Uh, Jerusalem and and temple. It was never restored that way, by the way. Uh, He's seeing one that's ultimately reflection of the one above. And the river of the water of life from the throne of God at the center flows down the main street, getting deeper, wider as it goes. That's impossible. No, it's not for God. <laughs> and it goes into the dry desert, makes it live. It enters the Dead Sea, makes it fresh and teeming with fish. The River of the waters of life. And on each side, Ezekiel says he saw, on each side, the tree of life. In Hebrew, the word tree etz, is, a, is a collective. It's like It's like we'd say deer, one deer, 15 deer. It's deer, you see. A tree, same way. And it's a grove on both sides of the river of the water of life, bringing forth its fruit every season, and its leaves are for the healing of the nation. And it's almost a direct quote brought into the Greek New Testament in the closing chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. That's what we have to look forward to. Ah. But Jesus spoke of that living water. See, living water is not stagnant like you have in a well or a cup or a baptismal font. It's moving. It's in a stream, as it were, at least in seaside where there's movement. Why is movement important? Whether it's pouring, sprinkling, moving, running in a river, because it speaks of chai, mayam chai, the living water. Movement and life are connected pictorially. The water of life is pictured as that, a picture of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus gives. So Jesus speaks of, I, if you knew, he says to the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar, Jacob's well on mountain Gerizim slopes in Samaria, he says, if you knew who it was who asked you to give him it to drink, you'd have asked him to give you living water. So Jesus, John, later on, John 5, I believe it is, stands in the temple on the last greatest day of the feast, and he cries out, we're told, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And out of his innermost being will flow, gush forth rivers of living water. Ezekiel 47. Coming through Christ, from Christ, through his experience and this we're told he spake of the Holy Spirit who was yet to come my paraphrase the Lord Jesus poured him out on the day of Pentecost after he would completed his work on Calvary and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension don't you see it's all anchored in the person and work of Jesus you and I can't participate in that comfort of the God of all comfort that's intended for those who are in Christ, how do we come to be in Christ? It's not complicated. It's profound, but it's simple. We recognize that we can never meet the absolute holy standards of Almighty God, and that we must have a substitute that God provides who will do that for us and will also bear and take away the just penalty for our sins. And that's what Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away John the Baptist said, the sin of the world, did for us on Calvary. If you confessed your sin and trusted Jesus alone to be your Savior, acknowledging him as Lord of your life, then you are in Christ and nothing can sever you. And if you haven't made that step, oh, my friend, Oh, my friend, let today be the day that you do. Let it be the first day of the rest of your eternal life. Let's pray.